Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. One day I can be sitting there yarning with young people around, you know, what's important to them and what's the kind of future we want to see than the next day in the room with government advocating for what young people have just told me and um, and then the next day sitting with elders and community members um, and just hearing kind of the challenges but also the fight that they've done to make sure that our voices are heard. Those are the wise words of Indy Clark, Executive Officer at Koori Youth Council. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Indy. First off the bat, thank you kindly to those who took a minute to vote for me and Humans of Purpose in the Pro Bono Australia Impact 25 Awards last week. We've also had some wonderful feedback on the episode with mum for our 150th, so that's much appreciated and mum tells me she thoroughly enjoyed the experience too. My gratitude always goes out to our listeners who have opted to actively support the podcast by becoming Patreon supporters. We're now 17 in our community and getting closer every week to achieving our sustainability target of 30 Patreon supporters. So thank you to our uh, Patreon supporter family, including Rich, Tanvir, Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. Our Patreon family are pivotal in helping me to shape the direction of the podcast through their advice, ideas, referrals, and ongoing feedback. If you want to join our Patreon community and support the growth of Humans of Purpose, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humansofpurpose. Today, as mentioned, I'm talking to Indy Clark, who is Executive Officer at Koori Youth Council. The way I got introduced to Indy was actually via my mum seeing him speak at the National Indigenous Justice Forum in Perth, where he blew her away with his uh, terrific presentation. And I must say, Indy certainly didn't disappoint in person. His work at Koori Youth Council is really fascinating, and I learned a lot from him about effective teaching, mentoring, communication, and how to better think about gratitude and mindfulness. Indy has ties to Muti Muti on his father's side and the Bunurong on his mother's. A Ladil man, Indy is and always has been passionate about his culture and believes that awareness of and education surrounding culture is vital. For him, both education and communication are the key to strong communities. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So glad you could join us. Thanks for dropping in, Indy. Uh, thank you. Honored. It's great to be with you. Um, We've made our coffees, sitting down for a chat. What is it? It's a, actually a reasonable uh, Melbourne weather day today, which I'm comfortable with. Yeah, it's, it started off a bit rusty. You weren't sure whether it was going to be cold or hot. And <laughs> yeah, it's come sunny now, which is nice. The old shorts and potential jumper situation. Yeah, there was a bit of that on my drive over here. Um, yeah, quite a few people out and going for a run and stuff, I thought. I'm so pleased we could connect. I mean, uh, we've got a bit of a funny intro story. My mum being over in Perth and seeing you presented uh, a, a conference. Uh, it was a judicial conference, was it? Yeah, and she she came back basically raving about you and uh, and one other uh, lady who I'm trying to get in touch with as well. And I'm just so pleased we could um, come together and make this happen. So, why don't we start a little bit at the beginning or where you're comfortable with? And if you yep. could just take me back um, into a bit of your journey and uh, and history and how we, you came to be here today. Yeah, I guess. Um, long story short, I was born uh, in Melbourne and yeah, or Nam in a sense. And, but grew up in Mildura, so um, northwest Victoria, about 600 kilometres from here. 
um, but always was back and forth in Melbourne and I uh, was fortunate enough to kind of um, have a really big family on my father's side. So I was kind of connected in both the city and the country and uh, kind of always had a longing for the city and was able to be involved in a number of opportunities. So, um, yeah, through my father's side, I'm a Muddy Muddy and Wamba Wamba man um, from my grandfather and then on my grandmother's side, I'm a Bunurong and Chualaway man. So I always joke around that I pretty much almost got Victoria covered uh, <laughs> just with those traditional groups. But then on um, my mother's side as well, I'm also Lardel um, from Mornington Island. So, yeah, my dad's one of 11 and has a really big family. Oh, that's and, um, amazing. I was kind of blessed to grow up in community and, yeah, it's something that's kind of bring me back here. And, um, yeah, I think in our lives we've always – Kind of, I grew up in a family that was always advocates and always um, pushed hard for Aboriginal affairs. And I think, yeah, I, I was kind of destined to end up where I am today. Is that something that you always felt you wanted to do and pursue that as like a career path? I guess I always kind of wanted to work in education. My dad did a lot for education um, to start off with and then kind of was a young man kind of running away from school and doing the things as we do as young teenagers. And I wanted to be a carpenter then, uh, but I think it was more just I didn't want to go to school. Yeah. Uh, but as slowly as I started to engage back into school and uh, started to work um, at the time, was in telecommunications, always had a longing to go back to community and work for the people that have pretty much raised me. And so, yeah, I think once I started becoming connected to the bigger purpose of what I believe that I was for and what we're all here for, which is that belonging. Um, yeah, I was destined to end up in this kind of line of work. It sounds like that's a um, pretty young age to have a realisation like that of such a high level of wisdom that um, that the, the universal purpose is belonging. How, how were, where were you at at that stage? Was this um, sort of early 20s? Yeah, early 20s. I think uh, I was fortunate enough to get a gig uh, working at the local Optus store when I was in Madrid at the time, finished um, education. And, yeah, it was pretty much fortunate to get a traineeship, stayed there for about four years, uh, worked my way up to supervisor, but I always knew, um, especially towards the end, that I needed to work uh, for community and go do something uh, for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And I said that to my old manager at the time. I used to joke around and say, the day I get a job for community, I'm going. And he'd always say um, a few expletives and be like, you're not taking off. <laughs> you can't leave me. And I was always just like, nah, one day. Um, and I always had an auntie at the time, Ada, who would always walk past and say, you need to come to Madash, you know, you're, you're destined for more than this um, and you belong in community. And I always said, yeah, yeah, one day, um, and I eventually did. And what about your family? Where Did they stay um, very much in Mildred? You said 11 siblings or your yeah. father had 11 siblings? So my dad's got yep. 11 siblings and many, many, many cousins. Um, so it's not too far, but we're kind of spread across. So both Mildred and Melbourne. So um, like I said, as a kid, I was pretty much travelling to and from Mildura and Melbourne for holidays. So I've always kind of known my way around Melbourne, which has helped. And I think when I moved here almost four years ago now, um, it was very much supported the transition, kind of knew where I was going. Did you always feel like you wanted to be in the city more? Yeah, I believe so. I think I always loved that small country town um, kind of way of life and you know, being able to drive to work in 10 minutes with a coffee in your hand. Um, but, yeah, I think... I always wanted to try what the city life was like and, um, you know, the opportunities are out in the city at the moment. So, And do you think, do you sort of feel a strong, like, call to home um, at, at the same time? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of lucky I get to go home quite a bit. I think I went home about eight or ten times last year, um, which was really nice for a weekend or for a nice break. Um, I've already been back, yeah, twice in the last month. So, 
um, yeah, it's kind of a blessing to get back in that. Absolutely. Beautiful. And so talk to me a bit about like that transition time and um, becoming sort of a, a key player in the, in the Koori Youth Council. And so what was that transition like? Yeah, it was kind of big. Like I said, I kind of, um, my nan was an absolutely amazing matriarch and very staunch kind of warrior for the Aboriginal kind of affairs space in Mudra at the time. She created and was a founder of the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. Um, and I kind of, and so was my dad, um, was kind of key in Aboriginal education. And so I think I've kind of just followed in their footsteps. And about seven years ago, yeah, it is seven years ago, I attended the very first Crew Youth Summit um, and it kind of changed my life. I remember walking into that space as a, a young Aboriginal man from um, Mildura at the time, a regional community and kind of very much chasing my dreams and all of these things. And then I went to this space and there was over 120 other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from across the state. Uh, and the energy that was just in that space, like the collective, um, you talk about wisdom, but the collective wisdom that sat in that space because of their elders, because their ancestors, um, and just the energy, it was just so amazing. I remember walking away from it and I messaged the executive officer then and I said, how do I get involved? Um, then was fortunate enough to become an executive member who are the young people that guide our, our work and, um, yeah, really give us advice and support. Uh, the work of KYC to make sure it's grounded in what young people strive for and want to see. Uh, and then, yeah, obviously three and a bit years ago, was fortunate enough to become the deputy um, executive officer. And then, yeah, a couple of months later, uh, the executive officer at the time chucked his hat in and said, um, I think you should have an opportunity um, put your hat in the ring. And at the time I was kind of a bit nervous, but yeah, the rest is kind of history now. That's so. awesome. It's pretty rare with the people like have a transformative experience like right then and there as you did on that camp and then you you kind of you chase your dream and then you actually, you know, you you reach the top of that um, pyramid, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. It's, I think, uh, yeah, I think, like I said, when I step into these spaces, it's really beautiful to know that you're not alone and that there's so many people out there walking with you, supporting you, um, and there's power in numbers. And I just remember walking away from that thinking, wow, like that's the space I want to sit in all the time. And, um, yeah, I was already kind of doing some good things in Mudra. Um, then it, there's the Youth and Community Engagement Facilitator and then um, to only get opened up to an opportunity that opened you up to kind of what was happening on the statewide policy level um, and a statewide kind of um, community level was really amazing. Um, as I said, for Madura, it's a small little community town. Um, so it was, yeah, pretty amazing to know that. Talk to me about like processing traditional wisdom and how you, you know, you talked about collective wisdom a bit. Yep. How do you kind of, as an experienced facilitator and educator, how are, we, how are you drawing that out and kind of what are the principles that you're thinking about in, um, you know, uh, taking that that tradition and that wisdom from a crowd and then, you know, um, both transmitting it and um, spreading it, but then taking action based upon it. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty special. I always say that the Aboriginal way of life benefits all ways of life and that, you know, 80,000 years isn't a coincidence. It was through love, passion, care and a unique understanding that everyone in the community played a role. Um, and then when we look at kind of Western society, it's very individualistic and, mm. you know, it's not sustainable when we actually think about it. And for me, it was always, um, you know, when you come to understand that, you just take such a greater appreciation for it. And I think also in my life, um, I've been fortunate and kind of privileged in the sense to be grow up around my culture. As a young kid, I used to dance in um, the dance group back home called the Lachi Lachi Dance Group, 
which wasn't just for the Lachi Lachi people, but any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander young person um, in Mudra at the time. And, you know, that's your identity, that's your culture, and that's what you learn. And when you're doing that, you know, you're walking in the footsteps of the 80,000 plus years. And so for me, it was kind of, it's innate in us that that happens, but it takes for you to understand that later on in life. And I think it was probably when I was about 23 that I started to realize that, hey, you know, this is the bigger calling and that's what we're about is that it's that connection and everybody longs for connection. And so for me, it's always using that. And I think it's very much that spiritual energy, but everything is energy as well. Yeah. Being in the city, do you kind of um, notice uh, just being, you know, in a city setting that the, the strong scent of individualism that kind of um, crowds our culture? Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, I'm always, I'm still the country kid that gets amazed by the little things. And um, I remember when I first moved here, the kind of joke was, I'm oh, such a country kid. <laughs> um, and I think it's very much the fact that we can walk past things and, you know, still not be surprised by them anymore or become so kind of null and void to certain things. And I think, um, for example, you know, how often we walk past you know, a brother or sister who might be homeless and just want to feed um, and we've come so accustomed to just walking past them and not even yeah. battering an eyelid. Um, for me, uh, I think you know that's that's a sense of how disconnected we are. The fact that we like allow that to happen as well is a deeply troubling thing. So we, you know, we're all complicit in a system that's resulted in that. And yeah. you kind of the standard we walk past is sort of the standard we accept as well. Yep, yep. And um, no one's perfect, obviously, but you know, when we walk past it, should at least trigger something in you to feel that that's not right. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I used to watch that when I first moved here in particular from Woodrow and it was just like, wow, um, how kind of disconnected we'd come from yeah. that. And do you feel that um, digital and kind of social media and things like this play a role in that individualism? Yeah, I love having um, big, deep and meaningful conversations <laughs> around technology and where we're heading because we've never been more connected but at the same time we've probably never been more disconnected totally agree um i love getting on the train and um, I, I really try and make an active kind of effort not to touch my phone when i'm on the train and put music on and then just sit there and kind of use that time as reflection um, i'm a big believer in reflection is really important to quiet or to audio uh yeah to just audio so Good music. I'm all about jams. Amazing. Um, very eclectic. Um, Podcasts or audiobooks? I need to get into podcasts. Um, we have your own one. Surely that's a good uh, gateway. I was going to say, I've listened to a couple <laughs> of yours and um, I think there's some yeah, great ones out there. But I love, um, I'm a music man through yeah. and through. I think that's probably one thing I couldn't survive without. 100%. And it's a great point of like, Disconnection in a positive way, or like connection in a way yep. that's, that's very positive too. I I worry like so much about people not taking the time to connect with each other, and I think part of the reason I do this podcast is because how often do people have an opportunity to sit down with somebody that they might not otherwise speak to generally, um, or not have a connection to, and make it carve out the space in your life for those conversations where you you can just learn so much. Yeah. Exactly, it's that presence and allowing that time to sit in that presence and be there for the other people. And, you know, in, in today's world, it's so easy not to be. Yeah, Especially you notice it when you talk to people uh, who have their phone out incessantly yep. and, you know, you're trying to just sort of connect and, you know, that they're playing with their phone or they just can't sit still. And that, that's a culture. I feel like that's partially, you know, the person, but it's also partially a result of 
uh, that 24-7 kind of adrenaline rush yep. um, society notification, notification, uh, serotonin shock kind yep. of wave. Yeah, there's a great talk uh, from Simon Sinek and he talks about kind of that instant gratification that we now chase and, you know, we're, we're all guilty of it. But, you know, you, you upload that photo and you're like, oh, yeah. How does that uh, roll into you sort of youth, uh, working with youth so much? You know, here listening to your youth, obviously youth, the generations beneath us are so much more connected to social media than even we are. How do they sort of play into that? I think it, it comes with its strengths, obviously, but it also comes with its challenges. And I think um, the social context in which young people live within now is so demanding. Um, there's so much pressure now as well as, the, you know, for example, um, just even bullying, we use that for an example, but when we used to get bullied at school back in the day, it was, you know, nine to four and you go home, you'd be okay. You're safe. Now it can continue on and follow you mm. all night, um, all day. And Rosie talked about that actually a lot yeah. on the podcast and sort of you were talking about Rosie from Project Rocket earlier and yeah. um, that that's such a scary thing to think about not being safe anywhere from a potential social pressure situation or a bullying situation where they're, you know, peeking at you and then you go home and the the home used to just be sanctity, you know, you get home and it's kind of maybe um, if you're in a good household or, you you know, your family loves you, you're at least away from the, the problem for a while, uh, but you don't have that respite anymore. No, and I think, yeah, everything's constantly in your face. You know, you've got to have a job, you've got to do this. You've got to be, you know, the young person that they want to see. And sometimes it's not even the pressure that they're getting from their family. It's the internalised pressure that they feel because of what they've seen and what they continually see on the screen. And so how do, is it, do you think that the Aboriginal community or, or um, so, some of your um, contemporaries, how are they using the web to kind of voice um, both both dealing with that, sort of that intersection of tech and also identity, um, but also, you know, reconciling both uh, the need to all, all the pressures and of just modern life and and tech. Yeah, I think one of the really beautiful things that I've watched, especially with young people, um, is the social movement that's coming through, and especially for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. Is we know there's a very deficit base kind of language out there when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But for us, there's actually so much strength, and we need to change the narrative to a strength-based narrative. And that's kind of one of our core purposes at KYC is to kind of change the narrative, change the language, and talk about the strengths, the fact that we are you know, one of 2,500 generations. And you get on social media these days and there's places like Titter for Titters, um, which is an absolutely amazing um, social media platform created by two sisters, which is all about empowering Indigenous women and sharing that strength-based knowledge. Um, my cousin, who continually puts on spaces, is Jiralala, um, around Nagami and creating spaces for young Indigenous entrepreneurs. Jira's your cousin? Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, we've been we were emailing a little bit. Yeah, that's my big sister, so yeah. I grew up with her. And, oh, wow. Um, absolutely love it. She's part of the inspiration of why I'm here Yeah, today. she's crushing it. I, I see, you know, the, the work she's doing in comms and um, communications is stellar. Yeah, exactly. So I think the, the movements that are happening from so many amazing young people that are striving to see the change that they want to see. When you said before, like, about changing the language and changing the narrative, like, what is the narrative currently that's that's got to be changed? Yeah, so I think it's, for me, you know, you constantly hear, like, um, all your black followers are the same and, you know, feeling those deficits. And um, there's there's one here in Victoria in particular, and I think in the southern kind of eastern, is that all Aboriginals are only from up north. Oh, right. Um, and, you know, this that kind of welfare-based kind of language that, kind of places our mob sometimes is the problem whereas actually truly understanding the historical context and the reasons and underlying issues of what's actually truly happening um, we'll get a greater understanding for the solutions that we need 
Um, so for us, like I said, at KYC, we strive to truly tell the story from the heart, mm. to truth tell on what are the experiences and challenges our young people face so that we can truly provide the solutions that not only our young people need but all of our community Yeah, need. that's amazing. And that that's such a big task, you know, to tackle that with a changing language alone is sort of like, you know, it's just like that's a whole lot of pressure on getting the language right. Yep, yeah, 100%. I think my my reality with it is that we've got to – be able to educate at the same time but it's around talking in a way that allows others to reflect um and it's kind of paul keating said it in his 1992 redfern address it's you know what we're saying today isn't to make you feel guilty it's not a constructive emotion but it's about opening our hearts and opening our minds and understanding what's the bigger solutions that we can push for but you know what is at the deepest kind of level of what we want yeah that's so that's so well said i think that um language is something that can really divide and getting that right is definitely a key part of the solution but i also think like removing um guilt from the lexicon a bit and people just listening more would be beneficial for everyone yeah straight up i think um like when we think about kind of guilt uh, the ability to sit in discomfort is most of the time of where we grow from yeah um but i think uh, there's kind of this thing that when you feel discomfort you've got to run away from it and push back on that but actually that's kind of the best place to grow. I love that. Is that is that a quote or is that something you've you've learned from? Yeah, I've heard that from uncles, aunties, um, and kind of this Melbourne community as well. I think when I first moved here, um, you know, just being around such a deadly kind of crew that were really understanding of, you know, where we need to grow and to really um, understand where we want to grow as a community. I think one of the best things I ever learned when I moved here was we need to unlearn what we learned to grow because um, we've learned such kind of patriarchal and kind of very structured and rigid ways, which is not what we need for the future. I think. Well, I think we've done a horrible job um, at listening, and I, I think there is a big part in all of this that's about how do you listen the right way? Yep. Uh, with, with an open heart, open mind, um, non-judgmental. And I think there's actually a fair bit we can draw from, you know, mindfulness practice around that that is really valuable too. Yeah, so I, I'm a big believer in mindfulness uh, meditation, um, and I, like I said, when I think of it, I remember reading a mindfulness book. It would have been about seven years ago. Uh, and I was, as I was reading it, I was just kind of, I kept coming back to what they're talking about is what my ancestors did. Um, that whole thing of kind of sitting still, listening to country and listening to the environment around you and listen to what it calls and tells you. And, um, I ended up going on a journey, um, and really like started practicing mindfulness and absolutely loved it. Uh, and I remember uh, my dad passed away when I was seven, but he's kind of, I've always had this belief that he still very much walks this earth with me and guides me and supports me when I need it. And um, I found a talk and uh, a DVD of his, and he talks about listening to the ground uh, and sitting in that space and sitting in your environments. And it was very much the way I was kind of talking at the time as well. And I remember my ex listening to it and she was just kind of so weirded out. She's like, <laughs> it sounds like you. Um, and the stories that I kind of hear secondhand from other people, but it's kind of that, like I said, it's that deeper connection as well. So I think that's very much the way of the future as well. hundred percent. And I think we can all learn from it, but it's funny how, you know, we grapple with um, things that are really complex, like tech platforms, you know, interoperability, um, you know, social networking, um, the, the what is the ideal form for business. But then we can't get, we, we don't put time into things like 
how do I listen well or, yeah. op- or optimally? Yeah, I think that whole kind of stigmatization around um, our mental health, you know, when someone's having issues or suffering from challenges with their mental health, we kind of demonize them instead of embracing it and working out how do we work together because, you know, it is, it's okay to not be okay. And we're all going to face those challenges in our yeah. life, whether we we're, like we're it or not. We're so bad at that. And I, I think we, I feel like it's a great thing that there's more statistics, like the one in four or the one in five statistic that Beyond Blue puts out, have been so helpful in opening up a safer space for people to have those conversations. How is it sort of, is it any different in the Aboriginal community per se, rather than the sort of wider community in terms of how mental health or depression is kind of looked at? Yeah, it's very much different. Um, uh, yeah, we could sit here and do a whole other uh, <laughs> podcast around that. But for me, it's I'm a very big believer in like obviously the social emotional well being. And for us, there's this um, topic of we like I said, it's the learning we need to unlearn to learn. And um, when we think about that, understanding the historical context and what that's done and affected hmm. kind of our people. And um, there's this wheel that was created by the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association called the Aboriginal Social Emotional Wellbeing Framework. And what it talks about is in the centre is us who, um, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, us as self and how we need to feel holistically well um, as I'm getting bitten. Yeah, I'm so sorry. My, my dog, um, <laughs> he's a wellbeing-seeking dog. He, he gives a bit of wellbeing, but he, he really will. Um, <laughs> I, I said to somebody today, actually, we were talking mindfulness, and I said the thing about having a dog is, you look at a dog and the dog is so in the moment that when you're enjoying the dog being in the moment, you're actually being in the moment. Yeah. So it's sort of incidental mindfulness practice. Yeah. I'm all about the puppy. Cyril's a little champion. But, um, yeah, for me it's the Aboriginal self and the holistic well-being that we actually need. And when you connect to it, like I said, this has been created by an amazing group of psychologists. It talks about um, the context is that for most people we think about physical and mental well-being and we're fine. But for Aboriginal people, that's actually an alien concept. Uh, for us, we need our connection to our physical, our mental, our spirituality, our family, our kinship, our culture, um, and obviously our land as well. And then if we think about, you know, kind so of... So there, there, are, there are a lot more dimensions really yeah. than, than how we, we have, like I think, a fairly narrow conception, I would say. We do, as you say, just talk sort of mental and social and maybe environmental a bit. Yeah, but when I still look at that, I still think about how actually beneficial that is for the whole of community because when we think about it, who are we without our family? Who are we without our spirituality? Oh, it's so true. Um, and we've had a connection to home or land. I always so, feel troubled when um, people tell me that they're worried about Christmas because I have to see their family. Yeah. And like that is the most depressing thing I've ever heard. I, I see I see my family uh, every Friday night and some yep. and uh, try and enjoy every minute of it. I, I don't, but I try. And, uh, you know, being with families, um, you know, you either think of it as a privilege or punishment. Yeah. I think we need to think of it in the the privilege concept mm. because it, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't have a family. Oh. And, you know, there's a lot of children and stuff that are in out-of-home care right now that, you know, unfortunately will probably maybe never know who their family are. And so I think of it like when I always think about the big family I came from and my dad's and my mum's, like I always think of it as a privilege. Um, it's a, it's a, definitely a challenge sometimes, that's for sure, uh, but I definitely see it as a blessing. You talked a bit before about oh, we, we were both talking a bit about mindfulness and mindfulness practices. Do you have a gratitude practice or do you want to talk a bit about your kind of journey to gratitude? Yeah, I think for me, I've, like I said, it's probably been about – five or six years, maybe even seven, 
that I started kind of really being kind of practical around my mindfulness and really understanding and practicing that in kind of every shape and form. Um, and my gratitude practices are always kind of try and finish the day thinking about what you're grateful for, even in the really big hardships, understanding that, you know, they've all been here to teach you something or kind of learn a lesson from it. And I think um, even in those really hard times of death and death of loved ones, I think I'm always grateful for the memories that I've had with them. Um, Yeah, I think last year in particular, um, that was probably tested the most when we lost my dad's oldest brother, who's kind of like my grandfather. And, um, you know, I think we kind of, it was really hard on the family. He was kind of the grandfather for the whole family, but, in the same time, we would remember just sitting down and we all just reminisced on the amazing memories we all had um, and how grateful we are for everything he's taught us. And I think, you know, uh, first of all, I want to say I'm, I'm so sorry for your losses that, that you've mentioned. I mean, it sounds like it's it's a difficult period. But, um, you know, I think people live on for as long as we tell the stories of them. Yeah. And I, I really believe that because, you know, both my grandfathers are hugely important to me. Both have passed many, many years ago, but I think about them all the time. And um, I even got um, a chair. My my grandfather used to sit on a a smoking chair. This is very old school. He used to sit on a smoking chair, have a cigar and a whiskey and look out uh, with binoculars out into the sort of the the river and the, the land and whatnot. And uh, I just used to, even that idea or that image of him doing that matters a lot to me. Yep. So my cousin said that he had that actual chair that he used to sit on yeah, wow. and he was moving house and w- was going to get rid of it. So I snatched that up and that's in the other room now. And every time I see it, I smile. Yeah. I, that For me, it was the same. I remember just going home and just kind of the little things, just smiling and just remembering. And um, like I said, I, I'm someone that can be amazed by just the little things in life and I think that's the beauty of being grateful. Yes. The gratitude thing has been a game changer for me. I tried meditation and I failed dismally at it. Yep. Um, I think my meditation is more found in physical activity or sport yep. um, or just long walks. So I tried instead to do some gratitude practice. I was researching around, you know, what is the easiest way to do it? And, you know, you know what this generation's like. Is there an app for that? So there was an app for that that's been terrific called uh, Presently that I use. And uh, all it is is at the end of each day, um, it gives you enough space to write three things that you're grateful for about that day. And I've noticed that just doing that has been a significant game changer for mood, um, well-being and, you know, the works because it means that there's a space that I know that at the end of the day, the last thing I do is going to be about something positive that I can get from that day, no matter how shitty the day was yeah. or how good. Yeah, I think very much so. I, I need to get better at writing but I think – at the moment, I very much sit in my head and will sit there and think yeah. about what I'm grateful for and kind of sit there and dream about what I want to create. <laughs> you know, the, the funny thing is sometimes they're different, the gratitude things, but sometimes they're really similar. Yeah. <laughs> so because you can sit down the page and you're like, oh, my wife is awesome. Yeah, oh, that, that was the same yesterday. Maybe I should try and get a bit of range in this, <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> yep, yep, very much so. You don't want to be too trivial, but, you know, you don't want to just be doing it for the sake of varying it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I remember when I started – kind of really writing them down last year I'd struggled with that as well because so I started writing the same things but whereas if I sit down I'll be grateful my head you know you can sit there and explain it in a whole different way um, I got worried once that I had already done it the day before and it was the same day because I wrote it down I'm like how is this the same <laughs> are you allowed like did they have, can they be the same can you yeah. copy and paste <laughs> uh, very much so um, and the same with meditation and mm. meditation didn't really work for me 
I ended up kind of practicing mindfulness and deep breathing. So terrific. So do you, is that a regular? Is that a daily thing for you now? Yeah, definitely. Um, and then if not, in moments of stress, just go and press pause. And um, anyone that works with me knows the songs that I listen to as well. There's uh, three songs that I'll listen to when I need to just chill out or before a speech or anything like that. Um, which is quite nice. That's amazing. So that's a strong pairing effect, really, isn't it? It's a situation and um, music that, you know, so th- are they to kind of get you in the zone and amp you up for something? Yeah, and just to kind of chill me out and think about kind of what I want to do and kind of just set the zone. And do you find now that it's so habitualized, or like part of the routine that um, when you play the song, there's like a autonomic or systems effect on you? Yeah, 100%. That's um, awesome. It's kind of funny too because when I'm around the team, They'll kind of just sit down, look at me, and be like, "Really?" and roll their eyes. But <laughs> they know what's coming. <laughs> Are you playing on the speaker or they're on your headphones? Uh, both. Okay, whatever, awesome. whatever, whatever's awesome. needed. It's or... good that the team's fully aware that you're getting in the zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny too because you'll find that when they need it, they'll sit there and actually join me, um, which is quite nice. So I wanted to change tack slightly and ask you a bit about the the work that you're doing at the um, at the Koori Youth Council, including the youth ju- youth justice work, because I think that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I think um, KYC is an amazing organisation that has um, a short history in kind of the scheme of things, but a very rich and strong history. So we're the representative body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people here in Victoria, uh, providing a voice to kind of government, community, and the wider society on the aspirations and views of young people and we exist um, to kind of advocate from a social policy lens. And we've been in existence now, I think coming into our 17th year. Um, We were actually established in 2003 out of ATSIC at the time, which was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. Um, And at the time there was a group of people sitting around talking about what they believe was best for young people. Um, And there was a couple of champions that sat there and said, well, who are we to decide on what this is? And that wasn't obviously young people who were being listened to at that time. Yeah, and so um, out of that they said, why don't we create an organisation that goes out and listens to the voices of young people and brings it back and, you know, really facilitates that space. Um, And we were established then as the Victorian Indigenous Youth Advisory Council um, (laughs) to changing our name to uh, Crew Youth Council about six or seven years ago um, in greater kind of acknowledgement of where we're located here in Victoria. Yeah, and so... Maybe tell me a bit about the kind of work that you're doing, um, both youth justice work, but also I'm interested to hear a bit about, um, you know, we talked about listening well before. So in your setting, um, what are the what are the things about, you know, listening well that you try and advocate to other communities to who want to engage more with um, young Aboriginal people? Yeah, it's really beautiful. I think the work that we're able to do is uh, I, we were asked a question the other day around what's the weirdest job you had and I thought about it. It's kind of <laughs> sitting there and I was like, well, this job com- kind of is the weirdest job I've ever had because it's <laughs> kind of perfect for where I'm at at the moment. One day I can be sitting there yarning with young people around, you know, what's important to them and what's the kind of future we want to see. Then the next day in the room with government advocating for what young people have just told me and um, and then the next day sitting with elders and community members um, and just hearing kind of the challenges but also the fight that they've done to make sure that our voices are heard. And so it's something that I'm really grateful for in, in our work. Uh, about three years ago now, um, when I first got into the role, we met with our executive, who were the young people that guide our work, and we said, you know, what's some of the strategic kind of priorities that we need to focus on? And they said, we need to start hearing the voices of those that are unheard. 
And what I was talking about was that obviously our young people that are in out-of-home care or youth justice that are kind of silenced by the system or silenced by the stigma and, um, and for our young people in youth justice, the incarceration, um, which set the framework up for the work that we did in youth justice. And um, over an 18-month period, we did a lot of work um, engaging with young people who had either been in youth justice or are currently experiencing youth justice around what's truly happening to the lives of our young people and you know what's the changes that they want to see. Because the reality is a lot of our kind of politicians and a lot of our decision makers will be making the decisions from an uninformed space. But actually genuinely what is happening in the lives of our young people who have been pushed into the quicksand mm. of the justice system. And so, yeah, over... Um, about a six to 12 month period we went to four communities regional rural um, and the two youth justice centers or children's prisons uh, to talk to children and young people who are like i said either currently in youth justice or experienced it around you know what actually happens in the lives of a young person in youth justice and at what points um, you know doing a journey map and it kind of gave us a great example of where we actually could have stepped in as a community, as a family, as a government, as an organisation and supported these young people and their families better um, and changed the trajectory of their lives. Uh, but yet we watched us kind of or the system push them further and further into disadvantage or you know, push them into the quicksand of the justice system. And so we ended up creating... Uh, an amazing project and a report titled Nuggaji, which in the Woiwurrung language of the Wurundjeri people stands for hear me, hear us. And when we think about what needs to happen in our youth justice system and in a lot of our youth programs is that we genuinely listen, value and act on the voices of our young people. That's really well said. And so um, in terms of like practical effect of that, does that sort of um, guide a lot of your work now and has that been something that you actively try and, you know, make a driving force behind your work today? Yeah, 100%. I think um, that, like we were kind of already doing that and pushing for that and I remember when we did uh, the Nuggage Project and we came to that name, I was like, wow, that's kind of everything that we stand for regardless of whether it's just this youth justice program but that we genuinely listen, value and act on the voices of children and young people, you know. Who knows the better than young people? Um, and that's the beauty of it. So for us it was really important to understand the lives and talk to them around what are the changes that they want to see or what are the changes that are necessary to see as well. That is, that is really well said. And I think um, – I'm curious, you, know, you do have to wear a couple of different hats in speaking to all those different groups. How hard is that to kind of transition across speaking with youth politicians and also and also like converting the words of youth in a palatable language that politicians can actually process and deal with? Yeah, I think for me it's always, it, it comes back to the kind of the, the cultural reality and I remember sitting in one of my first meetings uh, around youth justice and in a sense that we've become, like I said, so disconnected and we dehumanise our people, our people in general, to stats and numbers. But more importantly, every time we talk about a stat and number in youth justice or out-of-home care, that's a child or young person. That's a future elder or the future of our communities. Um, and first and foremost, that we should be trying to do everything in our power to make sure that that's not a reality. Um, and I remember sitting there and I... I kind of stood up and I said, you know, every time you say a stat there, that's, that's a child or young person in the community or in a prison that actually should be at home with their family. Mm. Um, 
And so for us, it's very much, I come from that kind of lens. I talk like that. That's a young person. That's yeah. a child. That's the future elder or the future of our communities. Because like I said, when in an Aboriginal context, it's always been it takes a community to raise a child. Um, and that's what we've got to strive to do um, for everyone is provide that community setting where no matter where they go, they've always got someone's presence there supporting them and looking after them and watching over them so that when, because as young people, you know, we're going to take a step back every now and then, but to know that we've got someone there standing by us the side or standing behind us that's there ready to take two steps forward. I liked how you you referred to um, Aboriginal youth as the elders of the future. I thought that was that's very like um, such a clever way to put it. That the knowledge holders and the, you know the custodians of the future, and that that to me um, sort of summed up how important yet how often overlooked youth are in all of these conversations. Yeah, hundred percent. I think in our context as well, it's elders are our heroes, they're our legends, um, and they're very much the knowledge holders and the leaders in our communities, um, and at the same time. Our young people, you know, want to strive to be that. I think there's no greater kind of thing that will happen if you're an elder. And it comes with a responsibility, obviously. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to grow up around so many amazing elders in my life um, that have kind of led me to where I am today, um, left me with many amazing quotes um, that I always relish off the top of my head or just think about. And, you know, when we talk about it in that way as well, I think we create a space where young people can see themselves in that light. Um, And that's that kind of changing the narrative, that strength-based vision of showing young people this is what you can be. Yeah. Uh, To me, it also sounds like a lot of your work is really cutting edge um, based in positive psychology too and just sort of changing how we think about what we need um, to help us, you know, be our best self and sort of strength-based and, you know, um, the multidimensional way that we think about well-being. It's, it's, um, It's music to my ears to hear that kind of language. Yeah, very much. Um, something that I've kind of always believed in. Uh, and, yeah, I'm not sure whether I've brought it along with me in the role, but um, I think it's something that we just we have to stand for. And um, for young people, we've always heard that they want to be the change that they want to see in this world. And, you know, we're seeing that with the climate action. We're seeing that every single day with young people. And what what about the role of mentorship in your life? I mean, you've talked a bit about um, your elders and family and people who have sort of played an active role, but um, have there been people sort of, you know, uh, in a professional setting as well who have, you know, played a big role in you being able to go down this path and uh, been important for you? Yeah, 100%. I think um, no one can be successful without a mentor backing them or supporting them. And um, there's something that we push for at KYC, um, and abroad is that we talk about youth participation and what that is is that we genuinely and meaningful, meaning, meaningfully see young people for the respected young people that they are, the respected values, experience and lived experience that they bring to the table and so that we don't kind of sit there and be like tap, tap on the head, yeah. thanks for that. Yeah, you're treating them like but pop, yeah, proper adults. But we recognise every single thing that they bring to the table and I'll challenge anyone that's successful um, or doing something in their life that if you look back, you've had someone that's practised youth participation with you, that someone's walked with you along your journey, sat there and recognised the unique skill set that you bring to the table, the amazing kind of person that you are and has been able to take either the two steps forward with you when you take a step back um, and just, you know, be able to shine the light when sometimes the darkness is there. And for me, I really think about that in the context of, 
youth participation, mentorship, whatever you want to call it, but it, it's having someone in your corner that's there to respect everything you bring to the table but also remind you of the person that you are. And um, I remember when I first started in KYC, I was getting explained youth, participa- uh, youth participation and I was kind of struggling with kind of the way they were explaining it to me and then I was like, wait, that's actually just the way of community. The way I grew up in community was always that that young people were always valued and respected for the rights that they brung. Um, and as we've seen, like I said, there's there's things happening now where there's so much kind of red tape or there's so many barriers and structures that sit in the way of that um, that we've just got to be able to break down so that we can engage with our young people the way that they want to see themselves as well. And so what are you excited about this year that you're going to be doing both inside um, Koori Youth Council and for yourself? I think for KYC... The ability to continue to grow, um, the ability to facilitate spaces uh, for young people to come together to discuss what's important to them, to create safe spaces for them to connect. Um, When we create the Career Summit, it's absolutely amazing uh, and it's beautiful that we can bring young people across the state together. And we always ask, you know, what, what makes it so deadly and what's magic? Sometimes the sad thing is and the sad reality is that it's sometimes the only time that they can come together and truly be uh, respected and recognised and valued for the skills that they bring. And I especially think um, those culturally safe spaces where for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, they don't have to continually justify who they are or kind of their culture or background. They can just be themselves. Um, so I, I'm always amazed by young people and sitting in them spaces. I love watching the first day and kind of the little bit of apprehension to kind of the space and then the last day you you can just feel the energy you watch young people kind of just yarning up to each other and cuddling and just saying can't wait to see you again and it's that kind of like we create the space but the magic happens inside and so anytime we can do that i absolutely love it facilitate and i think our role is to be enablers and facilitators um if it's not there how do we support it to be there um, and it is there, how do we facilitate opportunities for the voice to be there as well? Um, and then I think in a personal capacity as well, is it just continuing to do things that make my spirit shine? Um, my sister girl and uh, big sister, Jeralala, we challenged yourself, uh, each other probably about three, four years ago around we needed to do more things that make our spirit shine. And um, she's very good at it. Uh, I'm learning to be much better at it. What um, kind of stuff does she do to make your spirit shine? Oh, she's always traveling, living her best life. Um, and just, you know, I'm always inspired by the amazing uh, woman that she is and the great things that she's able to do. I think obviously you get to that point after a while. Uh, but I think for me in the first two years of this role in particular, I think I was so consumed by just throwing my all into the work and still have to put your all into it. But it's okay to do things for yourself. Oh, 100%. Um, and I need to get better at doing holidays. So being a bit uh, selfish and taking that time. Yeah. So uh, for me, that's kind of one of my goals this year is to do a nice holiday either overseas or somewhere beautiful um, here in the country. Awesome. That's so great. How can people, if they want to? I mean, this has been a really inspiring conversation for me. I'm sure many of our listeners as well. How can people support the work that you're doing and sort of you know help play a positive role in um, you know supporting the work? Yeah. For me, I think. Um, 3% of the population, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population can't change the 97%. We need agents for change walking with us and champions and allies walking with us and sometimes behind us um, that are out there, you know, telling the truth, 
doing the truth telling and the truth seeking to make sure that you know we are aware of what's actually happened in this country so we can move forward um you know it's kind of beautiful at the moment victoria's obviously um in this first kind of piece of negotiating a treaty and you know the big steps that come with that is the truth telling pieces that happen and um, it's through that kind of deep acknowledgement of what's happened in this country can we move forward um, and until we do that we can't and so for us okay i see the beauty of our work is just to continue to create spaces in which young people feel safe feel heard and that we can truly start to act on their voices and you know, create the change that they want to see and for anyone that wants to kind of hear more about our work and support it um, we've got a website which is www.crewyouthcouncil.org.au um, we're also on facebook uh, instagram linkedin um, i've got a really amazing team um, that obviously keep me accountable but you know they deliver absolutely amazing work um, if people want to hit you up um can they connect with you as well yeah i think i'm on twitter um what is my thing? Uh, NDC13. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram as well. But, yeah, Twitter's probably the main one. Um, I'm learning how to be more active on that. Um, <laughs> get your hashtags right. As you can see, I, I like to kind of have a big spiel. Um, it takes me a while to get to my point. So Twitter and it's 25 characters. Are you doing it in parts? Are you like a one out of 13 spiel kind of person yet? No, I want to be that person because I feel like that's the only way it's going to work for me. Yeah. Um, I just need to shorten and condense my words. It has been awesome catching up with you today. Thank you so much for dropping in. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 